Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our lives and our world. We always have a guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about robot design. Right now, designers are crafting robot designs that make life easier and better for humans. Joining us today as our guest co-host is Betsy Goodrich, Vice President of Design and Co-Founder of Manta, a Boston-based design and engineering firm. And our special guest is Rick Hubler, a Senior Director of Design at iRobot. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. We have another live podcast show coming up on April 23rd at 12 p.m. Eastern. We have Susie Wise, the former director of the D School at Stanford's K-12 Lab, who's currently teaching and writing a book for the upcoming D School book series. And we have Matt Cressy from MIT's Integrated Design and Management Program for a conversation about teaching design and empathy, particularly to the next generation of designers. So become a member of Design Museum and get your member-only live show tickets at designmuseumeverywhere.org and be part of the conversation. And with that, on to this week's topic. Have you seen that video from Boston Dynamics? I think it was released last winter where a robot dances with fluidity and grace to the song, Do You Love Me? If not, you should check it out because even though that robot definitely looks like a robot, it has far better rhythm and instinct for dance than me (laughs) and perhaps many other people, which is wild. Robot design is changing so rapidly. I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Betsy Goodrich to learn more about how robots are being designed in craftier ways and how they are being used to transform a number of industries. Betsy is the Vice President of Design and co-founder at Manta, a Boston design and engineering firm. Previously, she worked as a consultant developing products for Haymanetics, Plantronics, and Instrumentation Laboratory, just to name a few. Betsy is a fellow of the Industrial Designer Society of America, and she's on the board of the Design Management Institute. She has a degree in industrial design from the University of Arts in Philadelphia. Betsy's designs offer a deep history of innovation, research, and leadership. Betsy, welcome to the show. It's so nice to see you. Hi, Sam. Great to be here. So I want to start and talk about Manta, which you founded 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. which is such an awesome milestone. So congrats. So what led you to founding your own design firm? Well, Continuum was an excellent place to be and especially to start out at. Right from the start, John Zakai, one of the founders, had a deep commitment to really thinking through how things were used, how people would live with this product. And so it was a foundation of, you know, testing out scenarios. We would act out things early before, you know, any other firm that I'd ever been to. They'd been renderings, you know, sketching away, but not really thinking through. So Continuum really gave us the time and the space to dig deeply into products. And we started looking at human factors really early because we did so much medical and biotech design right from the start. So there you've got to explain yourself very clearly to scientists, more engineers and more engineers, and you have to come up with a way to communicate. And I think that is one of the big things that I learned to continue was just the importance of industrial design reaching out to every part of the team, understanding their needs, what they value, and making sure that's represented, especially in like a product requirements document. 
Can you talk actually about human factors? Because that's come up in a couple episodes. And it's like, how would you define? I used to teach human factors. I don't even know if I can define what it is. Well, it's considering what a user will do, what a human expects to do mentally when they see something, especially if they haven't been exposed to it, what in physical capability they bring. You know, they are used to interacting with certain things. So they'll look at it and they'll assume that it's like, you know, something you push is going to be like they're mower or, you know, they'll have certain preconceptions. And that's where the surprises always come still to this day, because we're always encountering new experiences. So human factors not only looks at the physical aspects of, are you tall enough to use this? Can you reach strong enough? But it's, can you hear? Can you see? And all those pre-biases that you're loaded with. And the only way to really evaluate that is to create the scenarios of use and watch people. We're definitely going to get into robotics because um, I know that's a specialty of, of yours and Manta. But I'm curious, you do so many other projects as well around product design development. Can you describe sort of like at a high level what your product design process is at Manta? Well, I think the first thing is always to really deep dive to understand who we're working with, what they know, what their fears and hopes are, what they can do in their own resources and how we can help. But, you know, the experience, if they have done, for instance, you know, what do they think about human factors? As we're talking about robotics, you know, some of the first meetings with people like from iRobot, who we met way back because they were in Somerville, we were in Cambridge nearby, they'd come in and glare at us and really not know what to say, you know, because they assumed we were stylists. So they needed to make it look better. And they had worked with stylists and there were problems. And so they brought us in to see what would you do? And we'd say, well, how do people interact with it? You get the blank face. <laughs> yeah. Wait, people are interacting with this? Yeah. Yes. You know, what are the problems people have? You know, so always who's who are we working with here? One of our projects, Rethink Robotics, was supposed to have a facial display. What's the rest of it look like? Well, when we first got there, it looked like a big scary bug and it moved in unnatural ways. <laughs> Most robots do because <laughs> they can. A lot of our work there, again, was stepping through who's going to use it, what do they expect, what's the workspace. For a robot, that's always a critical thing. Where can humans be? Where shouldn't they be? What does the robot know? What does the human know about this interaction? How did robots become sort of like, it seems like a core competency to what you're doing? Like, how did that start? Well, I think you know that was one of the things that we saw, Drew and I, when we started this company, there were so many startups and it was coming out of MIT. You know, Rodney Brooks and the lab that spawned iRobot, we were excited by that and we actually had to leave Continuum because these companies were too small for Continuum as it grew. So we focused on a lot of the neat new tech that was coming out, whether it be robots like Rethink or Scuba Roomba, or if it was going to be like Sensible, which was just a haptic force feedback device that we developed. That's technically a robot. We don't think of it as one. The bionic prosthetic foot that we worked on is a robot in essence too. Yeah, right. Let's chat about some of these robots. You mentioned Rethink and Baxter. That's a robot that is complex, but also is meant to like work shoulder to shoulder with people in like a manufacturing environment or other industry. Can you talk about Rethink and Baxter and kind of how that all came about? One of the founders of iRobot was Rodney Brooks. You know, he, I think Rodney was looking in and seeing the process changing internally in how we explored the designs and he liked that. And so when he started Rethink, he came to us because he knew they were pretty close to market, they thought. 
And <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because roboticists have a very different opinion of how robots look. I started to say that. And when we asked him what was wrong with the look of the robot, he had a hard time saying that because it looked great to him. But he did know enough, you know, having been through iRobot, that you had to really consider your audience and but just had no vision. So we filled the walls with images of everything, fake robots, past robots, recent ones, and learned that he hated some of the early robots because they really didn't work. They looked like they did, like Sony did a lot of Ebo and things like that. He was really, really insistent on making it something people would feel comfortable with. So a big part of that is human cadence. Industrial robots can move in ways and speeds that we can't. So from the start, Baxter was going to move slower. So that was a, you know, one of the starting points. But the whole idea of the facial display came out of his lab where he felt that was an important component to connect. Can you describe Baxter for us, for folks who have no idea what we're talking about? Baxter has two arms, okay, big <laughs> robot arms that can actually reach over and do a task, hand off to another hand, do different things. And it can turn and has sensors. So it can sense someone coming close in the perfect setting. As we found out in an industrial setting, there are a lot of other things it's trying to sense. So the intent was that it would be a robot that would be safe enough for people to be around because it could sense you coming. It would look at you, slow down, and then pause when you got within range so that it didn't have to live in a cage. Because having a robot in a cage defines a whole line and changes the ease of changing a setup. They wanted to be able to roll Baxter up for a couple of hours, a day, three days, and saw the niche where you know bringing in extra people to do really menial tasks was getting harder and harder to do, and especially to get them to do the job well after a couple of days. Robots don't care. They'll do the same thing forever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't complain much. So, you know, from the start, we had to get in there deep, get into understanding in the timeline what we could change, which was a big part of it, and then go out to sites. Some of these sites were thrilled to think of something coming, and other ones were standing there with their arms crossed, like, why do we need this? It's just another thing. And in the history of robot, if you bought, brought one into your company, you had to hire somebody to code and operate it. So that was another key aspect of Baxter. The facial display also became a touchpad to easily set up tasks. Oh, interesting. So you can kind of like train it in, in situ, like in that situation. Right, yeah. right. And so, you know, a lot of learnings with Baxter fed into Sawyer, which was just a single arm robot, but more precise. The software by that time was more precise. So that one, Sawyer is still um, being made and sold, but Baxter really didn't need two arms and that mass. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he really made a friendly face and got a lot of people interested. And the smart thing that Rethink did was see that they were going to put Baxters into every university lab and they became a training platform so that people mm -hmm. could have it. Almost became like a mascot, you yeah. know? It's like it had a personality, <laughs> it had a look. Like I still remember the robot really well. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of other research robots at iRobot as well. We did CC, which was a floor-based robot that would roll up and was basically like a friendly phone that came to you. How are these robots transforming our lives and industries? Like it just seems like they are really starting to come in. Yeah, they're much broader than we think. So it depends on how you define a robot. 
right? Sure. Let's start there. So a robot is a mechanism that can be automated to do a task. So that robot may be able to see, it may not. It may be able to move like on its own. It may not. It may be able to pick up and move things or not. Some of them are just sensing. So again, you can take the sense of what a robot is very far. Some of them fly, some of them don't. I think we're working in probably five or six different areas. We love the medical space because it can allow physicians to have more accurate positioning of different tools to be able to see down the throat, med robotics, being able to reach um, surgery sites that are very difficult and straining for physicians. You know, and it's just going to continue to build on all the learnings and the experiences that people have generation by generation as the code gets. And sensors, sensors, the revolution in sensing is a huge part of robotic success. Can you talk a little bit more about the med robotics? So there was a technology, um, a guy named Howie Chosett at Carnegie Mellon was developing unusual robots. And one of them was a snake robot. It's a series of segments and a cable system that would drive the robot to make really complex curves. And the people from the surgery world looked at that and said, that's something we could go through passages in the body with. (laughs) And of course, you know, there are things that you have to realize, like how far can you go? How much force can you use? You have to be safe. So med robotics came to us and they realized there was a surgery that was really difficult to do. It was done manually by line of sight, which was the base of the throat. And, you know, with people smoking, there's a lot of people getting tumors, cancer at the base of the throat. And surgery could, um, you're talking about a very tight space. You have a lot of risk of perforating different tissues. So this gave great high-res vision and teeny tiny tools right at the site to be able to remove the tumor, capture it, and then back right back out. Incredible. I mean, that's just (laughs) game changing. Da Vinci, I think, was, you know, intuitive surgical, um, came out of DARPA, wanting to be able to do battlefield surgery remote. That was the start. The huge amount of funding the government put into that was really what kicked off so much of the search into remote medical. Thank you for sharing. That's, That's so awesome. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Betsy's work, check out mantadesign.com. We'll post the link. And Betsy, stay with us, and we'll bring Rick Hubler into the conversation from iRobot. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Rick Hubler. Rick is the Senior Director of Design at iRobot, which, as the name suggests, is 
the leading global consumer robot company. Rick brings over 20 years of design experience to that role. Previously, he was the global UX design director at Motorola and the senior interaction designer at Fitch. He has his MFA from Carnegie Mellon University in communication design and planning. Rick's designs create useful, usable, desirable, and profitable design solutions. Rick, it's nice to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. We dug deep actually into our research and I did not know this about you, but I learned that you used to create these like events for teenagers that were like incorporating lights and sound, music, yep. you know, kind of studying their interactions. Can you tell us more about that and how that influenced your career in design? Oh, wow. I'm really, I'm really glad we're starting with that. So I used to uh, just uh, run events in, in um, weekend events, uh, camps, uh, you name it for like middle school kids. So I didn't know I was doing ethnography, but I really was. And it was before I knew what design was. And so desktop publishing was happening and multimedia was going on. And I loved creating these just experiences and emotions through all of this multimedia. And so my favorite thing that ever happened probably in my life was a week-long camp in Michigan, lugged a huge sound system up in the dunes a generator, a bunch of lights, 500 kids. And the dune was that big that we could have a full four teams in the middle of the night, glow ring necklaces, bonfires, and it was a full capture the flag. Oh my gosh. In the pitch dark stars to the sky, it was amazing. And I didn't know I was designing experiences at the time, but that's what I was doing. And so ends up, you know, kind of got over to what design is and interaction design, UX design, but like I've never gotten that close again to designing an experience. That's, it's all been downhill since then, but it was. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great peak. Literally, I mean, you're on a peak. That's awesome. Thank you for that. I was, I was curious. I forgot. We were also launching water balloons up in the <laughs> dark down at them as we played the Darth Vader theme uh, music. And yeah, it was, it was incredible. Sounds phenomenal. <laughs> we, we, we must recreate this. It has to happen. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. we can all be together again. Right. Can't right. wait. What makes robot design unique from like a process and development standpoint? Well, before I get to process and development, like I don't know many people that name their phones, you know? <laughs> it's a good start. Like it's really interesting um, that these are pets, these are family members. Things like phones or headsets, like they're so ubiquitous that culture doesn't matter a ton anymore. So what you find with these robots is like, well, one, I didn't realize navigating in a home was so challenging. And then, so you, you think about every single home is different. Like even if we all had the same floor plan and furniture, they'd still be all slightly different, but we don't. Like it's unbelievably how complex it is to clean all these spaces with all these furniture and all these configurations that are, it's like just, I don't know if it's billions of, probably is billions of different variables. So there's that, there's the context of it being like a family member. And then there's like, culturally like we're really big in japan culturally like what people think is clean is like very different between japan and the us so i love the fact that you have to understand these different dynamics to make a global product because we don't make one that's only for japan and one that's only you know we, we make these global SKUs. so i really like that challenge and it's very very different um and people have huge enormous expectations about a robot because it's called a robot so all these years of science fiction we have this thing built up in us of like what it needs to be and to surpass our expectations. And so uh, it's a big challenge. 
as far as process goes, I think it's not as mature an area. And so there's a lot of invention that goes on and it's, it's getting to the point where you're, I just actually left a meeting where we're, we're really talking around how to make more hardware and software platforms and be able to, you know, spin products off much easier than, but it, it really has been such a like invent a robot kind of space that it's way more that than, than like an industry that's been going after it for a while, like, like phones. I visited your design studio. And so I saw it's a number of different design fields represented on your team. So I wonder, can you walk us through sort of the different types of design practitioners and experts that it takes to develop a robot? And then maybe like, what are the fields that you also collaborate with closely throughout the company? Yeah, we have an industrial design team. We have a design research team. We have a user experience team a uh, user interface, or they we used to call it visual design. Now, I think it's the kids like to call it product design, right? Which confuses everybody, but it's a good term. We have packaging design as well. We are in the middle of IoT, so we have a lot that we have to figure out there. What's IoT? Internet of Things. So, you know, smart Thanks. home, mm-hmm. smart home space. So, we're going to be hiring someone who's a voice expert this year. We have a really cool relationship with Amazon. I think we were sort of one of the early kind of tech darlings that they promoted as a good voice assistant command to say, tell room to go clean, you know, like that was really useful and it was just sort of novel and they've been great to work with. So both Google and Amazon, we do a lot of voice design and actually get to collaborate with, with Amazon, especially on making it better. So we obviously collaborate a lot with mechanic, mechanical engineering and, and, you know, Mechie and EE and on, on the physical side, the firmware side, so there's the whole, all the software around robot behaviors, what it sounds like, what the noises are like, so voice design. We have interaction design on the hardware with just even like emptying a dirt bin or a, a, a water tank, the buttons, what they feel like, what they look like, what they sound like. And then we have an application that is very embedded with the robot behavior. So we have a lot of, whether it's through Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, but the, the actual app itself. We were doing a lot through... Uh, this relationship we have with if if this then that what do they do they're basically they enable people to create formulas where if you want something to do something based on a trigger you can kind of program it i see if this then that happens. yes exactly Got it. right so we're doing a lot of like if i um leave the house it could be a garage door a smart garage door it could be a smart lock it'll then tell your room to go clean and you can also just use proximity. We're getting more and more involved with the home being smart and the robot being central on that. We do a lot around mapping. So obviously we, we also have this map that all your access points can also be part of the map and can basically be helping each other and sharing information that you, if you say that's okay, but it'll share information with each other to make your home smarter and smarter. Our CEO likes to talk about the home becoming the robot where it's becoming so smart that the whole thing is customized and personalized around you and doing what you wanted to do even before, you know, just learning your behaviors and becoming smart for you. So we're, we were really in the middle of all that, which is, which is a lot of fun and very complex and challenging to get right. Let's talk about some of these robots. I think, you know, probably everyone listening is probably familiar with the iconic Roomba. What other robots are you working on over there? Well, the ones I can talk about, sure. <laughs> um, we, we do have a line of mopping robots called Brava, and it's a very different kind of robot in that it, it has water. Our top of the line product uh, called the M6, Brava M6, actually sprays water. 
And so it's quite important to figure out how not to get up on carpet when you're doing things like that. It moves differently. It has a pad on the front. And so try to figure out how to maximize the size of a cleaning pad, move over surfaces that get wet. It cleans really well. And so we have now two where the products will team clean and the Roomba will go out first and sweep and then the Bravo will follow it and, and actually mop the room. So um, they, they, they clean really well. And it's nice and quiet too, which is nice. You can be around it a little bit easier than the vacuums. I mean, these robots, they're so cool, but they ultimately have to interact with us, <laughs> with people. Yeah. So how do you, from a design standpoint, achieve that like humanistic interactivity in each robot? Well, so I guess I'll point to two things like sound design. You know, we really spent time figuring out what sounds are pleasant. And I'm talking more about the recorded sound and, and also what people found annoying and not annoying. Our robots used to kind of drive around and just announce to the world what was going on. If it was charging, if it had a problem, it would just talk and found out that people don't like that that much. So now if it's, if it's stuck, you go over and you press the button and it'll say, this is what my problem is. If you, if you don't, if you, if it's not obvious as you're looking at it. Right. <laughs> nice to say I'm stuck. It's like, yeah, you're obviously stuck. Right. 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 Uh, or just kind of list that out in the app, like what's really going on. Like I need, you know, I need more water, like whatever it is. And the sound, we, we spent quite a bit of time with a really, at the time we didn't have sound design internally. So we, we worked with an agency and, and did basically an instrumental string based sound as the kind of core of what we use. And on sound, like we actually just spend time designing it and playing it for people and getting their response and, and making it as humanistic as possible. Even on like robot movement, like when it comes off of a dock and it looks around and decides where it's going to go. Um, one of the coolest things we did is we hired puppeteers to come in. Actually, like folks from the Muppet Show, like nice. like real puppeteers. That's so cool. <laughs> they, came, they, they came in and they made puppets out of, we, we wanted to do something fast and not real expensive and everything. So they made puppets out of basically just foam core and long sticks that could sort of be out of the way and move these things around on the floor. And we were looking at individual robot movements and then the way they would team clean. And so um, they would have people come in and actually do different kinds of movements. And um, it was shocking at how quickly people could sort of suspend disbelief and just go with it and give us responses on like what looked too aggressive, what looked friendly, what looked you know effective. While we can't get all that into our products as fast as we'd like to, we, we know what we want to do and where we're going. It's been really gratifying the last couple of years to get more and more support in the company to make things like that that might just be a little bit emotional. It's not all about cleaning. It's got to clean really well. It's got to deliver. But then you have these other opportunities that are more about it being thoughtful or it being the family pet. People tend to try to bond with robots. Anything that moves that has, you know, an activity, we tend to personalize. Very much so. And that's a big part of accepting them. Yeah. Yeah. The anthropomorphic side of things is uh, very strong when something moves. And so we have people name their robot right as soon as, as soon as they set it up. And I don't know that it was something we thought of, but more than we just saw people did it anyway. Um, <laughs> you, can't, you can't stop people from doing it. 
So uh, it's very cool though. And we want to really push that further in the future, like let people perhaps create avatars in their app for it, as opposed to what we think it should look like. Let that play out. And if people don't want it, fine, ignore it. But other people that want it, okay. The cool thing about it is people are much more kind when it's not a perfect robot because they have this relationship and they treat it much more like the dog that chewed up something that they wish it hadn't, <laughs> but they're not that mad. So it's, it's helpful for us too, as we try to get better and better at being the perfect cleaning little robot. I love that. You're, yeah. You're designing in sympathy and compassion. Yeah. Yeah. It's built in when it's a robot, I think. I think that goes back to the Wally versus Eve kind of relationship. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we, we try to stay on the Wally side. <laughs> you know, so things like privacy and all that is really important to us. Like we want you to trust this little whatever you want to think of it as being in your house. We try to get the adjectives around what people thought about it. And the biggest adjective that would come out would be like a little superhero. Like it just goes and it won't stop and it's trying to do good for me. And like I I was really pleasantly surprised at how much goodwill people give towards us. And you know, the failure side of things can be somewhat spectacular too. If you've ever read the Roomba Pooptastrophe. Oh, yeah. I've yeah. Seen, yeah. I've seen that. Like yes. when dogs are involved, we're, we're working on that. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to fix it. We're working on it. But uh, that's great. Yeah. But for the most part, it's, it's a really, it's a great relationship. I think there's this long history of bonding with robots. Um, you know, from the early days, iRobot would show pictures of people dressing them up and, you know, cats riding on them and all these things. And, you know, we used to, we were involved in a lot of brainstorming sessions as to what the next robot would be. My personal favorite is the window washing robot. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but everybody has theirs, you know, for that task that they just really don't want to do and they know could be done better. And hopefully somebody will take that over. I think, um, you know, it's tough when now iRobot has so many different areas that you're working and you're trying to stay right in the lead, which is great that iRobot has stayed such the leading presence and set the standard in so many different ways. You know, and I love hearing how many designers and all the different spectrums of experience that you're bringing into it. So where are we going next? Are you going to, you're going out of the house now, you're on the lawn. Where would you like to go? What other things do you see? And I don't, it doesn't need to be a specific robot, but sure, sure. what areas? By the way, I have a window cleaning robot in a box behind me that um, from from a different company. There, but a couple of people are trying to make them. I think they work on really great big um, no panes kind of windows that you can get to easily and get to the outside easily. So um, obviously that presents a lot of challenges for simple homes. But I think like in just describing that alone, you can see already like okay, you could make a robot that cleans a shower, and let's say maybe it works on glass but would not work on all tile. Maybe it wouldn't work on tile at all. So you're going to make a $200, to $300, $400 product that's only going to clean a shower door. How many people are really going to buy that, right? One of the visions that Colin had that he really wanted to make an affordable robot in people's homes. And that's, I think, one of the big things that separated him from and, and their company from like Boston Dynamics or whoever that where you can invent and make these amazing things, but they're so expensive that you really you really can't sell it like a normal product, right? So that's the challenge is to find these things that can do a chore or a job from someone that they're they're happy to offload, but it's a frequent enough job that they're okay with paying what it takes to get that job done. And obviously the earlier 
that you start in a new category, the more expensive things are going to be because they're brand new and you haven't worked it all out and you haven't made it efficient. So that's what we're looking for is, you know, what are those other jobs that are frequent enough, that are painful enough that you're, you're happy to offload? It's fascinating to see people try to make things that fold clothes. Floor care is uh, just one of the very universal jobs. And, you know, I think COVID especially made it even more painful because people are in their homes all the time and they're looking at the floors more than normal, seeing what their kids are doing at the floors, their, their pets doing at the floors. But I think more than even a new product category, we're very obsessed right now in building out all the experiences around the robot. And so I think looking at companies, whether it's Peloton or whoever you want to talk to that have built all of this great experience from the beginning, when you start to even think about it all the way to purchase, all the way to like, what are we doing six months after you've, you've purchased it? Uh, what are we doing to optimize the cleaning? What are we doing to make you happier a year later, end of life? Like the whole thing, I am much more and our company is very focused right now on building all of that out. And uh, we have a ways to go to feel like we've done that super well. And so um, I'm just very excited that we're thinking so expansively around product experience and not just where the company used to be, which was to make something, put it in a box, sell it to Best Buy. That was great for a while, but we're really raising the bar on our expectations of ourselves around user experience and, and kind of joining that whole CX and UX arc. Well, I think you're setting it for the industry as well, you know, that as iRobos kept pushing, you know, the voice interaction, that's not been that done that well in a lot of different places. And it's great working with Amazon and all the others who have been really pushing voice activation, voice recognition, everything. So that's, I think that's a natural way to communicate rather than through remote all the time. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, we're, we're trying really hard to take care of the cleaning, but, but fit into your lifestyle and be really thoughtful, getting to things where we don't clean when you're in the room, go clean to a different room, like all those kinds of experiences. The way we try to think about it is how do we become a really great house cleaner? And the way you have a relationship with someone who maybe is cleaning your house and how thoughtful they would be and how you would want to tell them certain things to be careful with and certain, you know, and the same with lawn services. Like you don't start out having them just trim all your shrubs. You get to know them, you build some trust, mm -hmm. you go a little further, you go a little further. So we, we want to be that kind of brand that you just trust and love and then, you know, keep going with different product categories. For both of you, what's your favorite robot from fiction, from like the movies? And maybe we could start with you, Betsy, and then we'll go to Rick. Wally, Eva, I think still stand the test of time pretty well. There's a lot of them I don't even remember the names of, but there's like a cloud of things that I've seen. And sometimes it's in action, the way something just, um, Jibo for one. When I first saw it, I really didn't know what to think. I'm not as in touch, I got to say, with what's happening overseas. For a lot of the the schools, um, you know what they're doing in their robotics labs. I see some of the things that are happening here: the ways of movement, um, things grabbing tiny plastic particles out of the ocean, you know, and the shapes that evolve just out of that function. So I'll stick with Wally and Eva for now. I'm I'm down. They're they're great. <laughs> How about you, Rick? Any fictional favorites? Very solid choice. We have an educational robot now called Root that is 
pretty cute. But uh, I just had a fun thing. We, we redesigned our office back when we thought that was a good idea. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it was actually uh, the last couple of years. And we wanted to make some really creative window privacy designs. And so my team was able to design this, this uh, really cool like DNA of iRobot um, design, but then we wanted a character to name each each room, and so we went through like all the robot characters and all the spaceship characters. It's a very nerdy sci-fi place. It's really fun that way. But unfortunately, I, there's so many names in R2 X Y Z. Like it's it's hard to remember them all. I think my favorite, most recent one, is the sarcastic one from um, one of the newer Star Wars. I was thinking the same. I was trying to. Was it R three? Was was one. The one from uh, Rogue One. Yeah, the, t- um, the 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 tall one that um, really didn't tr- didn't trust her and uh, yeah yeah. I I just <laughs> loved that relationship and the the sarcasm. So I'm not sure if it was being sarcastic with me. I'd find it all that funny, but uh, they just captured something there that was uh, super good. So yeah, it's, it's been cool how they've added the doing the voice acting for for those robots. Yeah, yeah. And the new Star Wars is pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. I do also like the uh, the assassin robot from the Mandalorian. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yes. yeah of a similar vein. Mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. I was just trying to think of, uh, and I confused the two of them. They're they're two different ones, but yeah, that that one is. Uh, there's definitely an attitude there that was fun, and I think just the um, the way it can swivel, like everything can mm-hmm. just keep yeah. falling, and it's just like wow, it's just sort of like oh, that's very cool. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. That's awesome. Right. Right. Well, we'll have to keep watching these movies and we'll keep an eye out for iRobot. So uh, thank you, Rick, for sharing all this. Really appreciate it. Well, I, and I really appreciate what you guys do at the Design Museum and oh, really you. do really love what you do. And thanks uh, for your partnership and for having me on. Yeah, pleasure. Listeners, to learn more about Rick's work, visit rickhubler.squarespace.com and check out iRobot.com. It's that time, my favorite time of the week, sharing our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. I'll go first. So this week's weekly dose, uh, I learned about while I was researching last week's weekly dose where I talked about my favorite iPad app, which is called Paper. Well, the lead designer on Papers, a gentleman named Andrew Allen, He's launched his own smartphone app company called Andy, and he has this manifesto, which I just love. So his manifesto is no more boring apps. So in starting his company, he was very frustrated that we have basically supercomputers in our pockets, right? Um, You know, the iPhone is a very powerful computer, but the apps that we're running on it are relatively static and flat and in his word, boring. So he's aiming to shift all that. He has launched three apps that I just thought were so cool. So they are not boring weather, not a boring calculator, and not a boring timer. You'll have to check them out because they're so visual. It's hard to actually describe them just in words. But these apps are super dynamic with three-dimensional graphics and animations and like particle physics and complex rendered materials. I mean, Betsy, they almost look like, like a product, like a physical product designer created them and they're it's like you could reach into the phone and like pick up the sun on the weather app and hold it in your hand and like it when it rains on your weather app you really feel that it's raining it's raining in three dimensions um when you complete a calculation on your calculator there's this animation like 
you did it. <laughs> you know, you haven't done anything. But there's this animation that's like, it's almost like a video game, right? To like celebrate the solution to your problem. And so I just love the idea that even the simplest digital interaction or display of information can be dynamic and full of depth and delight. And Andrew and his company, Andy, have really made that happen with these three apps. So I highly recommend checking them out and we'll, we'll post some links. Okay, Betsy, you are up. Well, I've got to say one of the things in this time of COVID that I've really enjoyed, which isn't a product, it's not a real thing, but an art experience is if you follow the Banksy, okay, and you just see what people are doing around town. We have somebody that I noticed in um, down in Connecticut who's just moving into street art. You know, I, I've been following on uh, Facebook, Instagram, things just follow Banksy and seeing what people are doing and the joy that it's bringing out there. And it's something that I think once you start following that trend that anybody can do. So I just love, you know, we've seen what people have done for signage in their yards, you know, the hearts everywhere, things like this, the thank yous. I think we could all use a little bit more of this kind of like comic art rolling out into the streets, taking yeah, advantage. Yeah, and also a shared outdoor yeah, experience. Yeah, get us out. Right? You don't yeah. have to be close, but mm -hmm. you can put a little something out there in your space or wherever you find it, as long as you don't get caught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's the key. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. So it's not a product, it's an experience and it's a happening, right? So we all need to try to find ways to get out and see ourselves and the world a little bit differently and more positively. So I'm going there. It's happy. Oh, that's that's a great, <laughs> great way to end. Thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation. So glad to have you here. Thanks and be good and stay safe. All right, that's our show. I want to thank Betsy Goodrich and Rick Hubler for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to Manta Design, iRobot, and some of the other resources we discussed today. That'll all be on our episode page at designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, check out the We Design exhibition conversation cards. You can bring this exhibition home directly to you. We Design is an exhibition by Design Museum Everywhere that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck has been a labor of love here at the museum and includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, along with statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. It can be used alone or you can use it with your friends via Zoom. It's available now. Uh, check it out on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we have a very cool email newsletter that you can sign up for right on our website. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and editing support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you for being here and we'll talk again next week.